0: Father, once again, we're thankful for the privilege of coming to your word. We're thankful for the fact that it hasn't changed over the years. Men come up with new ideas, new programs, and new ways of doing things in the church and try to model it after how the world has done things and try to find success in worldly terms, only to fail because only the scriptures tell the church and the Christian how we ought to live. May we pay attention to your word, Father, and not be so concerned about what the world thinks, because the world will come up with a new idea, and Christians that follow the worldly system will come up with new ways to do things. Some new program will come up, some new idea, and it'll be a flash in the pan, and it won't work, because it won't be according to your word. Father, may we pay attention to the book that hasn't changed and the truth that won't change. We ask now in our Savior's name. Amen. Now, we're talking, we want to talk in our next two hours about the church at the end of the first century. And that, as you'll notice the subtitle, is seen through the eyes of the last apostle. Now I'm going to read my, my introduction because I kind of like it. That's why I wrote it that way. So sometimes I do that. Uh, sometimes I don't always follow it. Where's, where's Courtney? That's so I can pick on him. He's uh, sure. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Brother Courtney knows what I mean there. You, you put all these things on paper and sometimes you forget and you look and say, "Hey, yeah, I could have said that. That was better than what I did say when I wrote it. But So at the end of the first century, about 100 A.D., the church had come a long way from a humble beginning with about 120 believers in Jerusalem around A.D. 28 to 30. And you'll notice the reason why there's a footnote. The gospel had gone into Europe as far as Spain and perhaps even further than that, beginning without a single verse of scripture and two simple truths, by the end of the first century, the church had 27 books which were unique from the Old Testament and presented a new and better way for believers to live. Now, for the first time, believers were not only saved by grace, but were to live by grace. Now, just, a, just a note here. In your margin, if you'd like to put extra notes, put Jeremiah 4.4 4 and Deuteronomy 10.16. Now, the reason I want you to do that. Is because one of the major differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that you can find in the Old Testament plenty of things, you should do this. But there's one difference between the Old Testament and the epistles to the church. They never tell you how to do it. It said back in Deuteronomy 10.6, when Moses is coming toward the end of his life and he's lecturing another generation, he says, circumcise your hearts. But he never says how to do it. how would you go about that? You know, that'd be like handing me a hammer and nails and some wood and say, here, build something, Don. Well, I am not very good at building. And giving me a hammer and nails wouldn't do any good. And neither would it do any good to say to a fallen sinner who does not have the indwelling Christ, who doesn't have a new nature, it doesn't do a whole lot of good to tell them, circumcise your heart. Because they can't do it. Let's continue on. Against such a background, one might expect that the 1st century church did not have the problems of the 21st century church. It didn't have a long history of tradition, which often twists and even replaces Scripture. Nor did early church have denominations, which differed in many important beliefs. But the idea that all was rosy for the church at the end of the 1st century is simply not true. One writer put it this way, and I like this, this quote. Nowadays, there is a tendency to regard Christian churches of the early days as ideal institutions with members working together in love, peace, and harmony. This makes a beautiful picture, but it's far from being accurate. In point of fact, the New, Test- the New Testament indicates that there were many dissensions and disturbances within the early, with early Christian groups, and at a comparatively early a- date, there appeared a very helpful document dealing with this problem. This document is now known as the Epistle of James, And with all its five chapters, all and all its five chapters deal with problems arising within Christian groups or churches. Now, we're not going to talk about the Epistle of James this afternoon, but what it does do is it does show us that the church had problems right from the get go. It was not perfect because, of course, you have people. Now, if we could have a church that had robots. Maybe maybe it would be possible to have a more or less perfect church, but not while there's people there. Now, the book of James was written very early. In fact, most think, and I I would agree with this, somewhere around 45 A.D., which made it the first epistle for the church. But what is interesting to see is by progressive revelation that that epistle was addressed to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. It shows you how, how revelation increased over time because at first... As James is writing, he sees primarily Christianity as being Jewish without the clear indication of what was to come, and that was that it would be primarily Gentile. But so it would be very difficult for James, therefore, to see 55 years into the future as to what was going to happen. And some of the problems that James saw somewhat went away, you might say, but more serious problems arose. Now, in most, and I think for in, in, uh, for that reason, our study is going to look at, at uh, the last Apostle, the Apostle John, who lived into the 90s. Now, he lived to be quite old. He may have gotten nearly 100 years of age. He was very old, which means when Christ was here, he was very young. And most, most, most would believe that he didn't write anything before about A.D. 85. And my personal thought is that he wrote Revelation somewhere between 95 and 100 A.D. So, in other words you're seeing a man whose writings reflect what's happening right at the end of the first century, right when the the church of Ephesus is going to come onto the scene as representative of Christianity. So we want to look in this this paper at the first century church through John's eyes. We want to see what he saw, and we're going to see something that is unfortunately very much up to date. The early church did something that goes on today in many churches— they misdirected their love, not to the believers, but to the world. And we're going to see it. We're not going to make, as Pastor says, and I like one of his quotes, he says, I'm not making this up. I won't make it up. So, going on to page one in our notes, if you're going to follow along in the notes, I, uh, hopefully, when I, when I make notes like this, I try to make them so that you can read them at a later time and look at them, and it's almost as though you can hear me speaking, minus any lousy jokes I might tell which is most of them, by the way. <clears throat> but so, the testimony of Revelation. Now, this book becomes important because this is going to be written very close to the time of the church of Ephesus is represented here. And so, when you come to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to spend most of our time in Revelation 2 with a few excursions elsewhere. But when you come to Revelation, there's seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 which were the seven churches to whom Jesus himself is going to personally address, they are, I believe, they are historical and prophetic. They were historical, but they're also prophetic. And that's going to put the first church as the church at the very end of the first century. And what is true of that was true of Christendom in general at that time. Now, if you look at the first chapter, there's something I want to share that's important. John, in his writings, does something I wish every, every New Testament writer would do. He gives you an outline of what he's going to talk about. If you go back to the Gospel of John, and we're not going to go there, but if you go back to the Gospel of John from verses 1 through verse 18, you have an outline of the things that John is going to tell you about. He's going to tell you exactly what he's going to cover in his in his Gospel. Now the other Gospels don't do that, but John does. But now if you look in Revelation chapter 1, we're, we're going to be in chapter 2, but chapter 1 is just a page back, so we can we can turn back a page. Now John is uh, well. Let's let's go and start reading at uh, well. We'll read, we'll read verse seven in First John chapter one, First Revelation chapter one. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the being the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of the Lord Jesus Christ, was on the island which is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me, I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in the book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned and, to see the voice of him that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, I should stop here for a moment. I'm reading from the New King James. So if there's a slight difference, uh, it's because I have the New King James up here. And so, verse 13 Oh, verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. And his hair and his head were white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. And his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the, was like the sound of many waters. Talk about an intimidating picture there. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its its strength. Kind of like what Paul saw. And I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Now notice what he says. Write the things which you have seen. Okay, he's just seen something, hasn't he? He's seen the image of Christ. And the things which are, and the things which shall be after this, or here, the things which shall be after these things, as the King James puts it. Now, you'll notice in our outline, these, this is historical, and this is a, this is a development that comes. He has, you write the things which you've seen. He's seen a vision of Christ. Then he says, write the things which are. Now he's going to address seven churches, and then he says the things which are after these things. Now I put in your notes, and uh, I'm I, being word are not on good speaking terms lately. Microsoft Word and I have had many many a row before, but this is another one. I could not get this to translate into PDF without a problem. So you'll have to pardon me because some of the Greek words that I have in here, because I had to send it through email, and email doesn't recognize BibleWorks fonts, which some of you don't know what that is, but Many of us do. It doesn't know them, so it throws them into Arial. So, my Greek words that I printed in here, mostly for my benefit, uh, and for those who might know a little bit of Greek, they're garbled. So, you'll have to forgive me for that. And me and Word have just never been on good. I mean, I've, I've gone toe to toe with Word. But you know what really makes me feel good? I've had many a time when Word has edited something and said that grammar is poor. And I said, You're wrong. And I was right every time. Rick, comes out with some really strange grammatical corrections. So, if you have a problem with word, trust me, it's probably word that's wrong. So, why this is important is he said, the things which you have seen. Now, he's seen an image of Christ. And he said, the things which are, that's going to be the seven churches. And the things which will be after these things that the new King James translates, or the old King James translates it. Now, those two words Occur again in chapter 4, verse 1. You'll notice over, you just flip over page or two, and it says, After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. After these things, what things? The seven churches. Now, why is that important? It tells you something very simple. Point number three in our notes the church is gone. The church is not here. This is one of the most dramatic and graphic ways to show people that have any question about the church and the tribulation that we're not going to be here. In fact, you could make a note in your margin. And I should have put this in your notes. Write Revelation 3.22 and then write Revelation 22.16. Now, the reason you want to do that is because from Revelation, Revelation 3.22 is the last mention of the word church until Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, when it's concluding and saying some things about the church, the spirit, the bride and the church say, come, come to God. But from chapter four through the great tribulational material all the way up into 22, there is not a single mention of the church. Now, please tell me if the church was going to be here, wouldn't there be something that would indicate that? Wouldn't that word occur a few times? Wouldn't it be there somewhere? It's not. It isn't. Now, this is a very simple way. Now, there's another good reference, and I put this in here, it, under point three with a half circle around it. It says, after the church is gone, shows plainly the church will not enter the tribulations. Now, the other place to see it is an unfortunate translation. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 3, we read, there's a falling away that's going to happen. And I suppose, let's go ahead and go there. Uh, mindful of our time, we have to, what is it, 4, 440, 435? 435? Okay. Let's see. So, 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, two. Uh, I wish that they had done this this translation a little bit more accurately because the word that is used here comes from a word which means to depart or to go away. Now, if the if the verb means to depart, what would the noun what should the noun be meaning? If the verb means to part or leave, what is the noun? Departure. Would that be fair to say? Well, One Second Thessalonians chapter two beginning at verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning our, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. What would that refer to, by the way? Context. He's written the first letter, and what did he talk about towards the end of it? The rapture of the church. It says, and our, the coming of our Lord and our gathering together unto him. What is that? That's going to be the rapture. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, that as though the day of Christ, or there's, some vari- there's a variant reading, the day of the Lord, had come. Now, he says this, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless there come the falling away. The apostasia, that comes into English, it gets transliterated. Not translated, it comes across as a transliteration. And I get kind of frustrated with transliterations of words because quite often a transliteration is done because somebody didn't like what the word really meant. A good example, baptizo. That comes right over to baptize. You know why it's transliterated that way? Because the Church of England did not believe in baptism by immersion. They believed in sprinkling. And rather than admit it, they transliterated the word over. Now, I'm not picking on the Church of England. Although I could do it, but I'm not going to do that. But that word falling away, that word is translated only one other time in Acts 21.21. So you make a note of that in your notes here where you have, where I put 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Put Acts 21.21 there because there's something really interesting stated back in Acts 21.21. It was, a, it was a charge made of Paul that was actually true that he tried to, he tried to deny. But in Acts 21.21, 21, after Paul reports his ministry in verse 20 of Acts 20, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. That was about his ministry. And they said unto him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all zealous of the law, but... They have been informed about you, that you will teach Jews who are among the Gentiles to fall away from Moses. Now, that's not what it says in the New King James. It's to forsake, to, bar- to depart, to leave, to go away from something. It's the same word. Now, if it means to depart, forsake, or leave here, why on earth would it mean something different over in 2 Thessalonians 2? You know why they translated it that way? Because... The people who translate the Church of England made the King James, they did not believe in the rapture. So they tried to hide it. You mean somebody would translate a, a passage of the Bible to hide their personal beliefs? Uh-huh. It's happened. It's happened. This isn't the only time it's happened. This is not the only, Church of England is not the only one. If you talk to your, your friends of Jehovah's Witnesses, they made a whole translation of the Bible just to make one point. And John 1, 1, where it says the word was God, they made a whole translation so they could put in there the word was a God. That's the whole reason they made the New World Translation, just so they could put that one little word there and say, Jesus isn't God, he's a God, he's something less than the true God. That's the whole reason they made that translation. So, coming back to Revelation then, this is an important translation book because if you don't if you take one thing home today, take this home. Take take home Revelation 4.1, after these things and say, after the church, and then add to it Revelation 3.14, or 3.22 rather, and 2216. And you'll see the church isn't just isn't there. Now I don't know how much clear there's other verses. These are not the only two passages. These are just the two I like to show people because they're pretty hard to get out of. It's pretty hard to deny that if there's a departure and Paul's been talking about the rapture in the first book and it, and it starts the chapter off by in 2 Thessalonians 2 talking about our gathering together unto him and his coming for us. It's pretty hard for me to, to question the fact that that departure is our departure to be with him. In other words, the man of sin, none of those things is even going to start. So if anybody tries to say, oh, I know who the man of sin is. Well, you know what? You don't. You told nobody will not until we're gone. I always get a kick out of it. you. Meet somebody come along and be some, some politician or some person they don't like, and they say, "He's a man of sin. He's he's going to be the he's going to be the one." You know, you know what? I don't even care about who he's going to be, because I am not going to be here to see him, and neither are you. So why would we be concerned about him anyway? Having said that, I had to get that off my chest, Chris. You know how that is. My brother Chris here is, is of the same persuasion, so I can, I can pick on him. It's good to have you here, and uh, you can tell me what I always told you when I led you singing. You have all the time you need. <laughs> I used to do that to him on, on, the, on our church services in the afternoon at Valley, and he would look at me like, why are you saying this? The people are tired. It's hot. It was in the afternoon, but I did it, and we, we all, everybody appreciated it, I think. So, When you come to Revelation 2, then, these churches are historical, and I believe that they're in order of the way this dispensation is going to flow. And we're not going to go into it, but if you look at the last church, uh, the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3.14, you'll find out that this is exactly what you see today. When people look at the big institutional church, when they see the bulk of what Christendom is, they see prosperity theology. Did you know Revelation 3 said that would be the case? Well, look what it says in here. We're not going to spend any time here except to say, verse 15, Revelation 3, I know your works and how you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, now listen to what he says, because you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. What does that sound like, Joel Olstein? But thank you. Somebody <laughs> said that for me, for the benefit of anybody who would hear this. That was somebody said Joel Olstein. I was thinking of him. I was also thinking of the individual who said he needed to buy a, one of those fancy Learjets so he could spread the gospel. Now, now, brother Chris, do you think we could make a case for that, you and I, that we're going to we're going to take uh, brother Chris Camilli here is not willing to go out on a limb. Uh, okay. Well. But you can see, then you say, notice what it goes on to say in verse 17. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, does that sound like a much of a, a commendation of a man? Sounds to me like you've got a problem. So that you can see, if you look at this, this is in order how the dispensation is going to go. And so the last church is the church of Laodicea. And by George, we happen to be seeing it all around us. So what does that tell you about the rapture? Now, I'm not going to set any dates. But I can tell you, it looks to me like it cannot be very far off. So, now Christ's words are going to be addressed to the pastor of each local church. Now, here is where the King James does us a big favor. The New King James doesn't do this. And I know a lot of people don't like the these and the thous and the the thines in in the King James at times. But here's one place where they're really helpful. Because the New King James just says... To the pastor, I know your works in verse 2. But the King James says, I know thy works. And it's important because down through here, and I have references, and you can see under point 2 with a little half, half moon by it, that every one of the churches, they, where you see the, per, the personal pronoun, you, it's translated in the, in the New King James as you, but in the Old King James it's translated in a singular. It is a singular. What we're saying is the pastor was the one that was being addressed. It's a pastor being addressed. Now, I know it says angel. It says to the angel of the church, but now here you go again. Guess what this is? It's another transliteration. Angelos, angel. Now, what was an angel? What was an angel or an angel? A messenger. That's all it is a messenger. And sometimes those messengers delivered messages to individuals like Daniel. But does, a, does an angel have, happen to get up behind the pulpit? Now, I know Brother Kevin is a good speaker, but I have not yet heard anybody accuse him of being an angel. He's pretty good, though, pretty close, you know, but nobody's accused him of that. Angels are not involved in the church. The church, the ministry is given to the pastor, and as the pastor leads the church, the church tends to follow. I want to show you something. Let's go back to Acts again, Acts chapter 20. There's an interesting little bit of information here that will show you that this pastor's responsibility to guide the church. But it also does something else. In Acts chapter 20, I can show you right from Scripture that a pastor, an elder, and a bishop are the same person. Now, I know there are denominations that have elders, and they have bishops, and they have ruling elders, teaching elders, and they have everything else. But, you know, you can show them from right here. According to Scripture, they're the same person. Now, look. let's go to Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And Paul, well, we'll read verse, we'll read it, verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would come, so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if it were possible on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, you notice he calls for the elders. Now, if you go over to verse 28, talking to the elders, look what he says. Take heed to yourselves and to the flock Of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word that is often translated bishops. Okay, so he says, he calls for elders, and he said, God, the Holy Spirit's made you bishops, overseers of the church. And the New King James says, to shepherd the church of God. Now, it's translated feed in in the King James, but the New King James translates it shepherd, and that's what it is. It's a verbal form of the word to shepherd. So you have shepherd or pastor, Bishop or overseer and elder. Who are they? They're the same man. They just happen to be three ways of looking at him. Spiritually, what should a man that's going to be a pastor be like? Well, hopefully he's going to be an elder. He's going to be spiritually mature. And what is he going to do? He's going to oversee the church because he's the one that's got to do the teaching. And he's going to feed the church. He's going to shepherd it. He's going to feed them from this book right here. It's pretty simple. So it's not a spirit being. I, I, know, that, I know that people would, would like to fantasize on this, and I, I know that the, the theology of imagination is, runs rampant here, but this is addressed to the pastor. And that shows you why, that being a pastor is a very serious thing. Those men who are brought to the ministry, it's not a light duty because this man is responsible for what the church does because he's leading the way. And if the, the pastor is leading the way into error... Well, then he's influencing a whole bunch of people, and that's a pretty serious matter to be thinking about. So, now, the, 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 Jesus has some words to speak, and we're back in Revelation 2 again. He has some words to speak to this man, and one of the things that, find, that I find fascinating is how Christ defines, describes himself to each of these elders because every time he does, if you read through all of these seven churches, every time Christ speaks, he, ta- he refers to himself in different terminology. And that terminology, I believe, is nothing more than t- letting that pastor know, this is what you've either forgotten or you don't know. You've forgotten this. Now, what does he say here to the man in Ephesus? These things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Okay, so back in Revelation 1:20, we saw that the seven stars are the seven. Let's see, the seven stars are the are the messengers, the pastors, and he says, he says, I hold I hold the seven stars in my right hand, and I walk in the midst of the golden lampstands. So, what does that tell you? Christ is in control of everything in the church, and he knows what's going on. He holds the pastor in his hand. That pastor is there because of his power. And he's in control of it. Now, you'll notice when it says he walks in the midst of it, that's, that's pretty significant. That is pretty significant in my book. We're going on to page 3. So the pastor knows what's going uh, The Lord knows what's going on. Now, one thing here that's of, of some interest, I believe... Is that when you go back to the book of Acts, you will find out, as we just read, he called for the pastors, the elders, plural. But in Revelation 2, it's to the single messenger of the church of Ephesus. Now, in Paul's day, that was 30 years early, and you notice in our notes on page 3, if you're following, that Paul's day, 37 years earlier, there were plural pastors. And the church met in more than one home, which was why there was more than one pastor, by the way. There wasn't more than one teaching pastor because it's the right thing to do. It was a necessity. If they met, and really, if you go back to Acts 20, it says they met publicly and from house to house. It could be translated publicly even from house to house. So what Paul did is he went to this house, then this house, then this house, and all the way around. However many houses there were, there was a pastor in each house. But now when you get to the book of Revelation, there's only one pastor. Now, we could guess that maybe the church became big enough to have a building, but there's a catch there. And the first known church building was in the the 240 A.D. era. They found a remodeled house. So Church of Ephesus probably didn't have a house. So I suspect, now this, I can't prove it beyond what I see here, but I suspect that by the time... The church reached the end of the first century. The church of Ephesus had shrunk to the point where they could meet in one house. Now, that might be good, that might be bad, but I suspect it became smaller, and this is my my thoughts, for, for a couple reasons. One of them was what Paul told could happen to the Ephesian elders. He told them himself. He said, some of you are going to lead away disciples. You're going to go into heresy. You'll go back to Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. We're not going to go there, but you can read it. It's, the references there, and you'll find out that possibly that was something that happened. But now I think there's, a, there's another reason, too. We're going to see it says the pastor left his first love. Now, if he left his first love, and we're going to talk more about that And he wasn't loving the people like he should have. Is it hard to understand why people wouldn't stay in a church if the pastor really didn't seem to really be that concerned about them? I wonder if that has anything to do today like with building bigger churches. And we want more money so you people need to give more money. Well, you're poor, but that doesn't matter. Everybody needs to go by, and we'll put the box here and play a song, and everybody troops by the box. Right, Pastor Kevin? Till they, you coop by until you give, right? right? Give till it hurts, you know? Now, is that showing love for the people? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, that happens today. Now, I'm not going to say that happened back there, but my guess is that in some way the pastor of this church or the whole ministry of this church pointed this direction, and it shrunk to the point where it could meet in a single house. Now, what happened to the pastor? Well, I think what the introduction tells you, what Jesus said, is that he forgot who really is in charge of things. When it says, he who holds, in verse Ephesians 2.1, he who holds the seven stars, that word for hold, I, I, my definition of that is you grasp something so firmly that you're, not, that you're in control of it. It's not going to get away from you. And I gave you a reference there. Back in Matthew chapter 12, when Christ was speaking, he talked about someone on the Sabbath who had a sheep fall into a pit and he laid hold of it. Now, if he grabbed his sheep to get out of the pit, do you think he was going to control it? Do you think he had a firm enough grip that that sheep was not going to get away? That's what this word has the idea. So what what this pastor seemed to forget is that who was it that really held him in his position? Who was it that really gave him his power? Now, Brother Ray was talking about how, how we need the power and, and how we can't function as believers without it. But you can see this man needed to remember who really held him, who gave him power. And you also, well, you, you, could, you could say, now I, I noticed, I put in here, if the pastor overlooks this, it might affect how he, how he uh, treats his people. Will he lord it over them? Does he have plans for the church, a megachurch for his own glory? Does, does he remember that who's holding him there and why he's there for the people? And now Christ is also well aware of what was going on at Ephesus. And you can see that because it says, and this is top of page four. I'm following my notes, Courtney. That's a difficult difficult job. Courtney and I have a running, kind of a running joke about that. Pardon me for, for bringing that up. But uh, but on top of page four, uh, you'll notice that Christ's word, that he's in the midst of the church when it says that, In verse 1, it says, he walks in the midst of the seven churches. In other words, if he's in the middle of the church, do you think Jesus knows what's going on? Mm -hmm. He knows what's going on. And so the pastor may have forgotten that because I suspect that when he says these things, this is a reminder to him, hey, God is the one that's upholding you. And he knows what's going on in your church. Makes you kind of wonder, did the pastor know what was going on in his church? Oh, now, wait a minute, Pastor Kevin, you would, you would, you've never heard of a pastor that didn't know what was happening in his church, did you? No, we've never seen that happen. Well, yes, we have. Now, as we look at the church, and now remember, this is the church, this is summarizing, this is what the church at the end of the first century was. Not just the Church of Ephesus, yes, it was a historic church, but I believe it represented all the churches. It was a general, overall view of what Christendom shall we say, was like at that time. Now, he's going to, Jesus is going to commend this pastor. And what's going to happen here is interesting. Ordinarily, I would think if a person only had one, one fault or one problem or failure, you probably wouldn't be too prone to criticize him. I mean, that's kind of the way we would think. But, well, we're going to see that that's what happened with this man. But first of all, he's going to be commended because he had, first of all, diligence and duty. You'll notice what it says. I know thy works and thy labor, and thy patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. There is no condemnation in that. That's commendation. This man had been doing his job He's doing his works. It's that word for labor. It says, you've labored. It's a word that means you've worked to the point of being fatigued. Interesting reference to that. If you want a reference to that, uh, write in your margin, Luke 18.5. Luke because there's a fascinating use of this word, but it's translated in the King James' as troubles. It was an unjust judge who had a woman who kept pestering him about getting justice for her. And the judge said, she's, going to, she's troubling me. She's going to weary me. And you look back and it's kind of an interesting take on this because it shows you that she was going to wear this guy down by coming at him. Every day she came in and says, get me justice, get me justice, get me justice. And Finally said, this woman's troubling me. I'm just going to get her justice. And it's, it's, it's kind of almost a comical story, but it shows that this word means that. So this is a man who was willing to labor. He was willing to put in the time to do what he had to do for his church. And he was commended also for his maturity. Now you're going to see in Revelation 2:2, 2, 2, he says, I know your patience. Your labor, you, I know your works, your labor, your patience. And that is our word. You'll notice I put it in here, patience, and I gave you uh, G5281. If you use Esword, anybody here that uses Esword, it's a free Bible uh, Bible study program. Put it on your computer. It doesn't cost you anything, which is my favorite price. That's the reason I got it. And actually, I found it's very helpful. And you can trace this word through, the, the without knowing a single word of Greek, you can chase this word and see where it occurs and how it's used and how it's translated. And so, if you want to do a study, but you don't know Greek, but you still want to do it, you can use eSword. Now, that's a commercial message. I don't even get any money for sponsoring them. So. I <laughs> I should, uh, I should get a kickback for because I've, I've, I've incurred. But, but, it's, a, it's a wonderful tool. And anytime you get something that's free that can be helpful, you know, the only thing I ever get, I ever got free when I was a kid was the common cold. And so this is, this is better. I never liked the common cold anyway. Now, this word that you have here, patience, it's not part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But it's rather something that is learned. It's more what we would call endurance is a better term for it. And you can see now, uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to go there. But if you look in in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, you can see how that when someone goes through tribulation or trouble, and Ray was talking about that, Ray, whenever they do that, what happens? If they endure it, if they go through it, they get endurance. They, They become an improved character. They become better for having done it. And that experience... Is a mark of maturity. So in other words, this pastor, he was diligent because he had labor. He was willing to work to the point of exhaustion. He had some maturity because he had ability to endure. And he also had something that's really lacking today. Discernment. Discernment. You notice that Jesus said to him, You've persevered. Let's see. And and you, verse 2... And you have tested those who say they are liars and are not, and have found them liars. Well, we should say, you cannot bear those that are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and found them to be liars. Now, I like that. He says, you cannot bear it. Now, I put in there the word bear. You can see it. And there again, I'm just frustrated when I see that, what... uh, what word did to me, and in, in, in it should have been Greek letters, and it's not, so please forget that. But if you use esord, you can look up this word and see this word, bastazo, and see how it's used. And it means, and I think it means to carry something, but it also involves mentally enduring it, or putting up with it mentally. <clears throat> Now, I have two verses on here, and I want to go back to just one of them. I want you to see that this word means to put up with something, because it's, it adds an interesting little note to your understanding of things. Back in Acts chapter 15, this is used by none other than Peter. Now, in Acts 15, you have the first church council, and you have quite a discussion about whether the Gentiles should be required to keep the law of Moses as believers. This was not a question of, did you have to keep the law to get saved? That was never the question. The question was, did the Gentiles have to keep the law? Now, in verse, in verse uh, well, let's begin reading at verse 7 of Acts chapter 15. I really like this. This is one of the moments, this is one of Peter's early moments of great wisdom. And he did some other things that weren't so good, but he came out good in the end. But this is an early example of smart. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God to put a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? You weren't able to bear it. Now, that's not looking at having the Ten Commandments in a backpack and carrying it around. It's talking about how it affected you up here. Because if you lived under the law and you really followed it, you'd find yourself sinning all over the place. And I'll tell you what, you'd have to have a lot of flocks of sheep and goats so you could be making those offerings for all of your sins. It would be something mentally, the anguish and the frustration of it. And you could just see, oh, oh, hey, look down the street. There goes Brother Hewitt again. Look at that. He's got three goats, three goats and two sheep. He must have really been sinning this week. no? but that's that's not quite really what. But you'll notice what it does tell you, though is that Peter recognized something that the others didn't, and when they made the church decision, they didn't make a complete decision because they only said the Gentiles don't have to keep the law as believers. But what did Peter say? Now, therefore, verse 10, why do you test, why do you put God through the, why do you put God, let's paraphrase it, why do you try God's patience? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither we nor our fathers were, Able to bear. Past tense. Were in the past able to bear. What does that tell you? He said we can't keep the law and we weren't able in the past to do it, which means what? We're not doing it now. now. We're not doing it now. Now, I I don't think James caught that because when James makes his decision, he says that you Gentiles do not have to keep the law. But what did Peter say? You read it for me yourself. Tell me, did Peter understand that the Jews didn't need to keep it also? I say, yes, he did. Because it says, neither did we nor our disciples were completed action. We weren't able to bear it in the past, which makes you think, we're not bearing it now at all, are we? That's what it's telling me. Now, I might be mistaken, but I don't think so. I don't think so. So, now, so this, so this pastor here, and, and back in Revelation chapter 2, he could not mentally put up with those who were teaching error, that were evil, And those ones were the false apostles. Now, we should say something here about that word evil. Now, I put a note in here, if you're following my notes down on page 4, evil is G2556, and that's kakos. Many of you are familiar with the word kakos. If you're not, that word is translated evil, but it is not always an ethical term of moral right and wrong. It just means something that lacks in character. Now, context may indicate that it's something that is bad, but if you look back at Luke chapter sixteen, and you need to see this, I want you to see this, because there, are, if, if in many circles, if I said that, they'd have the tar and feather already, the tar already heating up outside, and the feathers ready to go, and say, "Oh, you're you're changing, you're you're taking away sin, you're minimizing sin." No, I'm not. I'm not minimizing sin. This word just isn't a word that means sin. It means something that lacks in character. Now, it may be that that thing which lacks in character is a temptation to sin, in which case it is a bad thing. But it may also be that it's not. Now, if you look at at Luke chapter 16, you have the true story of a man. This is not a parable because back in verse 20, the beggar is named Lazarus. Now, in parables, you didn't have people being named. You just had people being talked about, like that unjust judge we mentioned earlier. Didn't say who it was, didn't say who the woman was that came, but the judge said, she's wearing me. You didn't have any names there, but here you've got a name. So now, let's read for a moment, beginning at at Luke chapter 16, verse 20. "But, But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at the gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, the rich man died, also died, and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in, in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame." But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things, and likewise, Lazarus, evil things." Now he's, but now he's comforting your torment. You've received evil things. Now, was that, what does it mean, evil things? Things that lacked in character. Well, let's just go back a few verses. He was starving, and so he wanted to get the crumbs from the rich man's table. The rich man could have taken him in and fed him, for heaven's sake. But he didn't. And dogs were licking his sores. The rich man probably could have helped this guy get some medical treatment. But he didn't. So what did this man have? The quality of his life wasn't as good as it should be. It lacked in character. Now, why that's important is because when you, when you look at sometimes with temptation, you can be tempted with things that are evil, but they're not inherently wrong. They lack in character because they just might take you away from where you should be. Oh, I've got a good example. This one hit home with me. I used to be a a political junkie. I used, I loved politics ever since I was like 10 years old. I used to love, when I was a little kid, some of you might remember this, the Hutley Brinkley Report. On Sunday night, it was news. It was, supposedly one was conservative. Well, he was about as conservative as, well, he wasn't. And the other was openly liberal. And they would discuss the news. I used to love that. Now, you know, since then, Listening to, to the news, listening to some of the stuff that they try to pass off as news. Let's just put it that way. Let's, you know, you could probably shovel it out of the, the barn of a, you know, if you had horses. But uh, listening to that, there's nothing wrong with listening to that, is there, per se? But what if it makes you lose your temper? What if you get sick of hearing it? I, I started to get to the point where I was going to, it was going to make me do something. I Now, the news itself isn't bad. People can listen to it without being affected, but I couldn't. I got so mad that I was ready to smash my radio and tear my computer apart because I couldn't stand it. Not the results. Well, I'm not going to go any further than that. But so I stopped. But there was nothing wrong with listening to the news, was there? Anything wrong with that? Anything wrong with keeping up to date with what's happening in in the world if you you can get it off the media? No. But what if it's going to make you do something you shouldn't and lead you in a direction you don't want to go? You start to lose your temper. Uh, I don't want to lose my temper. It's too hard to find it once you've lost it. Believe me, it really is. So, everything that is evil is not overtly nasty, rotten, bad up front. It's just where it might take you. you I know I can think of something else. What about the guy that decides he's just got to have that nice fishing boat? Well, let's see. Now, he works during the week, but so he goes out on Saturdays. And then he gets to thinking, you know, I could go out on Sunday. Now, is it wrong to own a fishing boat and go out spend your money if you have the money? I don't say anything wrong with it. But you see what it can do? It can become evil because it can lead you to do something that lacks in character. Next thing you know, you begin to miss church. You begin to go and and, uh, it becomes more important than some other things, including your family. Well, we don't want to go. We don't want to go too far there. But you see that this man back in, back here in, in Revelation, he was he had good discernment. He could find those who were evil. He could find out those that lacked in character. Now that's that's pretty tough to catch because though, we're not talking about people that were greatly greatly off. We're talking about people who were closer to the truth and maybe they should be. Now. The church, and you notice I put a note in here, the church should not, should not tolerate teachers who spread false doctrine. Now, you can read that in Titus chapter 3, but I remember something, I believe Pastor was the one that said it in his teaching, that the church should not tolerate these kind of people because the most damage that happens to the church is not from cults on the outside, but it's from people that are inside that twist the scripture and misteach it. And we shouldn't tolerate that. And this man didn't tolerate it. He wouldn't tolerate those who were lacking in character. Now, it says he tried them. Now, I want to say a word about that. And uh, do we have time, or is this time for break? We got ten minutes before break. Okay. Well, we're not making. I, I need to make pick up my pace here a little bit. Uh, and, and by the way, folks, uh, the last several pages are what I call addendums, starting on page about fourteen, and that's material that I was not intending to cover, but it was material that, that was interesting, that was related to what I was doing. And so I put it back there, if you wanted to go a little further. There's, some, there's two subjects back there that may be of interest to you, and you, and you can read them. We're not going to touch them. We're not going to have the time for that. But now it says, he tried those. Now, this word for tried is a word that, it's. And you see, I gave you the number. If you look in the bottom of page four, it's pirodzo. It's a word that means tried, but it's often translated tempt to tempt. But I believe, my definition of it is, it's to test something thoroughly, that's to look for a point of vulnerability by testing. You're looking for a weak spot. And that is used in, in, in the temptation of Christ. Now, I say that that's looking for a point of vulnerability. But, let, but if you go to the top of page 5, or page, well, it may not be page 5, but it's, uh, yeah, my pages, I think my pages are off. Okay. I think you're off. Yeah. I'm off. But I have, I have as point C. It says, "Tried does not automatically mean tempted with evil unless Scripture says that." Now, why would I say such a thing as that? Page seven. Page seven. Okay, boy, how did I get so far off? I printed this copy up at home, and it's uh, so. I guess I'm going to have to be careful. So uh, that makes me feel good. I'm further than I thought I was. So. Nothing like finding out you're not falling behind. Now, if this word, if this word for tempt automatically meant solicit to evil, solicit to do something wrong, then tell me why in James chapter 1, James says this, that God cannot be tempted with evil. Now, why would you have to say with evil if it was automatically part of the word? With evil. Now, when you go back and look at the temptation of Christ, tell me what Jesus was asked to do that was evil. Making, stone, making, making bread out of stones when he was hungry, was that inherently evil to make that? No, the only problem was that it wasn't what God wanted him to do. But making bread was not inherently evil. Getting the kingdom was not inherently evil, except it wasn't God's time. So what Christ was asked to do was not inherently evil. And that's when temptation really can become difficult. Is whenever you're tempted to do something that doesn't look bad up front, but it isn't necessarily what God wants. I've likened it to two. My, one of my illustrations of it is just imagine that, you have a, you, that you're working for a company and you're offered a big promotion and a, a new job. And you get twice as much money. But all of a sudden you find out that your job involves some travel. You're going to be away from your family. well not so, And also you have to go out with your clients. You have to wine them and dine them. Wine and dine? Wine and dine? Next thing you know what happens You may be starting to do that 12-ounce curl, too. You know what the 12-ounce curl is? If you haven't, well, that comes from my background. That was what they used to say in high school about guys who were drinking beer, 12-ounce curls. That was their exercise. You know, in other words, you can be drawn into something. It's a promotion. It's a good thing, isn't it? No, it's evil because of what it's going to do. It's lax and because it's going to lead you right into something you don't want to go into. You mean making twice as much money would be bad? Yeah, it could be, very easily. Well, so anyway, so what this man did when we're saying this here, it said he tested those who say say they were apostles. In other words, he put them through the ringer. He put them through the ringer. That's what this means. He didn't just ask them a few questions. It says he tempted them. He put them through the ringer. By the way, you might want to write in your margin, John 6, verse 6. You might want to write that there because you know what? You have where it says Jesus was proving, who's proving, which, who was it now? Philip. Jesus was proving Philip. It's translated to King James. It's this word for tempt, pyrosa. John 6.6. 6. You'll find that Jesus was translated proving Philip. No, he was testing him thoroughly. Apparently, Philip thought he knew more than he did or something like that. So he was being tested thoroughly. So this word for temptation, be careful with it. I'm not saying that people don't get tempted with evil. If you're old nature, those works of the flesh, if you look at the works of the flesh, there's no doubt about them. They are just flat out bad. They're flat out wrong. If you're getting ready to lose your temper, there's nobody's going to tell me that, that you can make a case for losing your temper where it's, and say, oh, it's all right. Or doing some of those other things, getting drunk, any of those things, envy, strife, and the worst things, Murder. I could just like to see somebody try, rationalize how that's right. Well, anyway, uh, okay, we, we, should, we, we better stop. Let's take 10. We're going to come back to the latest trend in, in church government. Let's, let's go ahead and take about 10. And uh, we'll come back to re- re- rejecting the latest trend in church government.